Father God, we thank you for your word and we ask that you will give us uh, open ears and open hearts, uh, that we will hear uh, what it has to say and that we will take it to heart. Amen. In addition to being a congregation member here at 10 o'clock, I'm also the father of two young children. Uh, and one of the things that my kids love is to read stories. All right, They love books, they love stories, they love bringing them. And as someone who also loves reading, it can be really exciting to sit down and read uh, a story with my kids. But they don't always just want to read a different story and a different story and a different story. They often want to read the same story, night after night after night. I'm not sure if other parents have encountered that. Yes, no? And, and that story that the first time I read it, I may have went, oh, this is a really cool story, I really like it. Over time, I find myself perhaps reading it a bit faster, skipping through it, just trying to get through it uh, so that we can maybe get to the next story and get them off the bed because really... While it was really enjoyable the first time, now this is like the hundredth time I've read this story. And yep, I know everything's going to happen. Let's just quickly get through it. It's that idea, that great phrase of familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? We get really familiar with something and over time we might come to despise it or become indifferent to it. Uh, Or familiarity can also, I think, breed a kind of comfort that we assume we know what something is about. We know where the story's going. We don't need to pay that much attention to it. We can take it for granted a bit. And I think this can actually be a problem for us when we come to the Christmas period because Christmas is one of our most familiar Christian stories. The birth of Jesus, no room at the inn, the angels, the shepherds, the kings. And it's a story that's in our culture as well because our culture has been shaped by Christianity. And that familiarity with that story I think in the wider culture, can breed an indifference to the story. And uh, that indifference really can be, on one level, another form of contempt, of not really caring about the story, especially if the story matters. People assume they know what this story is about. They, They know the general gist of it, the beats. They think they understand it, but do they truly know it? But I also think for those of us who follow Jesus, there's a danger of getting really comfortable with the story because the danger is we miss how incredible this story actually is. On one level, I would argue, the Christian story is unbelievable. It's a story that should never strike us as normal because this Christmas story is about God, the one who created all things the one for whom all things were made, entering into his creation. That should always strike and amaze us. And I think it's helpful here as we come each Christmas to look again at the story. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look through this story of the birth of Jesus. We're going to explore what Luke is laying out for us in Luke chapter 2 to see what it is that this story is telling us. So let's turn now to Luke chapter 2 in these first few verses. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. 
Now, how often do you think of these verses when you think of the Christmas story? The journey, perhaps, from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. But what about the names that are mentioned in those verses? How much do they form part of our story when we think about Christmas? Because these are actually really important names. And Luke is doing a couple of things for us with them. He's firstly grounding his story in history. Luke wants to know this is not simply a made-up story. This is not something uh, that he is telling that has no basis in fact. He's providing real events that really happened. If you turn back to chapter 1, he writes in these first verses that he is undertaking to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He's bringing together stories for a purpose. And that purpose in chapter 1 verse 3 is to write an orderly account for most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke writes with a purpose. He wants Theophilus to know the truth of the things he's been taught. And for us, it allows us to. And so we have here events that really happened. Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. He was during a census that took place under Quirinius. Luke wants to draw our attention to that. But it's not just that. Because it's also interesting to consider what's happening alongside that history. In chapter 1, there were a number of angelic visitations. Uh, And one of those was to Mary. Uh, And the angel said to Mary in chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So an eternal king is coming. That is the promise that has already happened in chapter 1. And here we come, opening in chapter 2, the birth of Jesus with a mention of Caesar Augustus, the human ruler, the one who seems to be in control, the one who has the power to order a census, and not just any census, one that sends people back to their ancestral homes. So from one view, it looks like Joseph and Mary have no control over what is going on in their lives. They're not able to choose where they want to have the birth of Jesus. But in that, we also see God's hand at work. Because where is it that they are returning to? Well, Joseph is of the line of David, so they return to Bethlehem. And it's unusual here for Bethlehem to be noted as the town of David. Uh, If we look in the Old Testament, it's mostly Jerusalem or Zion that would be associated with David. But Bethlehem is the town of David's birth. And so in a sense it's fitting that the long-awaited Davidic Messiah is born there. And it's also the fulfilment of Micah chapter 5 verse 2, the promise that the ruler of Israel will come from Bethlehem. So we have two things going on here. One, the ostensible ruler of the Roman Empire, the one who controls the world, calls a census. But the result of his census is for the Messiah to be born where God promised that he would be born. What we read in chapters 1 and 2, what we see happening is God's plan coming to pass. It doesn't matter who the earthly ruler is. It doesn't matter who looks like they are in control. It is God who is in control. And he fulfills the promises that he made. We then come to the birth narrative. There's 
this great story that we have. And if we come to it, it, it might strike us as a bit simple and straightforward, especially if we're used to the cultural Christmas story with, uh, with all the animals and the stable and door-to-door journey to find the inn and, and where's the, the innkeeper? Because none of those are in Luke's account. This is simply what he writes. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. It's so simple. But in fact, this is more detailed than any other birth account we have of Jesus. In Matthew, Matthew simply recounts that Jesus was born. Yet these simple uh, lines are actually filled with interesting links and contrasts. Already Luke's drawn our attention to the connection with David, that Jesus is this Davidic king who was promised. But here, the manner and his place of his birth are humble and lowly. He is the expected king arriving in an unexpected way. Instead of a palace, he's placed in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. And this unexpected way of his birth continues with the announcement of it. Now, birth notices are a thing that have changed over time, but the heart of them is who do you tell when you have children and, and in what order do you tell them? For, for us, we you know, firstly told our immediate family some phone calls, some text messages. Then you perhaps let a few close friends know. And then the great benefit of today is you just whack it on Facebook and the world knows. All right, three easy steps. But who is it here that receives the birth notice about the long-awaited Davidic king, the coming of the Messiah? Well, we turn to verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Shepherds. Now again, we expect that because we've heard the story. But why shepherds? Well, some have suggested it's because they represent the downtrodden, the despised of society, the, the, those on the outside, that the idea being that the good news is first being proclaimed to sinners. But if we look to the Old Testament, shepherd is actually a really positive image. God, in fact, promises that he will be the shepherd of his people. So I don't think it's likely that they're there to represent sinners. I think it is again in keeping with what we've seen so far that this birth announcement first comes to the lowly and the humble. What they are is not the powerful. The announcement of God's coming king is not going to those we would expect. It's being made first to the common people. And we may not resonate so much with the shock of that because the story is so familiar to us but it should strike us as surprising. And there's something else here that I think is really interesting. The appearance of the angel. Again, angels are a familiar part of the story. We know about them. But what is the reaction of the shepherds to the angel? At the end of verse 9, and they are terrified. They see the angel and it terrifies them. Why? Well, because the glory of the Lord shone around them. Imagine this. In verse 8, it's night. Dark, 
I mean, they're out in the country. There's not as much pollution. There's probably stars. It's not super pitch black, but it's dark. And then all of a sudden, it is light. The glory of God is shining out. And the angel appears. And they are frightened. And this actually matches already what we would have read in chapter 1, where when the angel appears to, uh, to Zechariah and the angel appears to Mary, what happens? They are terrified. They are told not to be afraid. We make angels familiar and comfortable, but they are terrifying because they are God's messengers. There is glory shining out. We are reminded of our unworthiness before God. And as I read that, another thought comes up for me. How incredible is this birth of Jesus, is this child, that God's glory must be so veiled in him that the same thing doesn't happen to everyone who sees him. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever wondered? Or do we take for granted that Jesus was a human and and people could see him? But Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we've seen that encounters with the divine are startling and unsettling. Yet God veils his glory to come among us. How incredible is this incarnation? That God comes among us as one of us. Not in a way that terrifies those who see him, but as one with whom people can speak. And here he is a vulnerable child laid in a manger. The incarnation beggars belief. It is incredible. It's something we should be careful that we get, don't get too used to and not be struck by the wonder of it because what we have here is the God who made all things entering into his creation and doing it in such a way that his true glory is veiled so that he can come to do what he has come to do. And interestingly, if we jump ahead in Luke's Gospel, you come to the story of the Transfiguration, where Jesus takes a few of his disciples up to the mountain, and there he's transfigured and his glory is seen. And what is the response of those disciples? They are filled with fear. Yet Jesus chooses to veil that glory so that he might come to do what he came to do to live, to die and rise again, to win victory over sin and reign forever as king. But one day Jesus will return and on that day his glory will fully be seen. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and he is no less God in that manger. Have you ever wondered that as that child lies there, he is also through his divine nature continuing to sustain the universe. How incredible is the incarnation. So let's make sure that we give thanks to God for his wondrous mercy. Let's be struck anew each Christmas by the incredible nature of what is happening here. And let's turn back now to the birth announcement that the angel actually delivers. Turning back to verse 10. Do not be afraid... I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Again, familiar words for us. 
The Saviour has been born, the Messiah, the one who is Lord. And there are a couple of things here that I want to just dig into slightly. And the first is this continued link to David. Remember back in in verse 4, Joseph goes to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. This emphasis on the connection to David. And here, today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. It's the third mention. There is this clear emphasis on this connection between Jesus and David. And it's helpful because it reminds us that this Christmas story doesn't just stand out in the ether. Jesus didn't suddenly appear. That there is actually a connection to the history of Israel, to the promises of God. Last week, Dan mentioned there are hundreds of years of silence in prophecy. But here God is speaking. That silence is ending. And it's ending with his final, ultimate word, his son. The one to whom the prophets were were pointing. The fulfilment of promises. Jesus is the promised one. And this is, as the angels say, good news. Because it reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. And his faithfulness brings great joy for all the people. And who are the people? Well, our instinct is probably to to say, well, all people. And ultimately that is true, but I think there is also that sense that we shouldn't miss that these people are firstly the people of Israel. The fulfilment of God's promises that were made to them. And so if we want to understand Jesus, we should also look to understand the promises that he made, the history of the nation of Israel. Yes, those promises extend to the nations. That is part of the wonder of God's saving mercy. But first it is good to remind ourselves that he is part of that history, not abstract him from that. The other thing I want to pull out of this birth announcement is perhaps not quite as obvious because it seems very normal to us. In verse 11, Jesus is called... Saviour, Messiah and Lord. All three things, well, completely normal. This is who he is, isn't it? What's strange about that? Well, it's interesting that in the entire New Testament, this is the only time that all three of those terms are put together in the one verse. Elsewhere, all three are used and sometimes two of them together, but only here in the New Testament are all three of them used together. And all three of these are linked. And they remind us that both what is expected in the promises is happening, the fulfilment of those promises, but also that what is happening is perhaps in some ways unexpected, is more than could have been thought. So Jesus is first called Saviour. And there are links here both to the songs of Mary and Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. We didn't read those songs, but in Chapter 1, verse 46 and 47, Mary's song, Mary's song starts, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Mary gives praise to God as Saviour. In the context of the song, it's that he remembers his promises. It's giving thanks that she is the one who will bear the Messiah. It is giving thanks for the fact that God will save his people. And in Zechariah's song, um, uh, he, uh, following John's birth, he says, 
in uh, 169, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Here the focus in Zechariah's song is God raising up a saviour rather than being the saviour. Zechariah is pointing to the one who will come from the house of David, the one who we know through these links that Luke has drawn out for us is Jesus. Here in chapter 2, Jesus is described as saviour. And he's primarily referring to his function as the deliverer, the horn of salvation that Zechariah is giving thanks for in chapter 1. But it's also not insignificant that he's described using a title that often is referred to God, as Mary does in her song, and is found repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Yes, he is the saviour, the promised one, but he is more than what the people expect. He is also the Messiah, God's promised king, the one we've had the clearest links to, uh, the promise made uh, to Mary that God's eternal king is coming. But also, uh, he is the fulfilment of all those promises that came through from the Old Testament, that link back ultimately to David, the promise made to David of one who would rule on his throne forever. But Jesus is more than that because he is also the Lord the one that for people at the time probably would have been the most surprising. In the previous chapter, Lord is used 18 times and all of them are references to God. And this fits with how this is used in the Old Testament. And it tells us that Jesus is perhaps more than the Israelites at the time would have been expected. A saviour, well, they were hoping for. That the saviour is the Messiah, the long-awaited king is not unexpected. But for that saviour, the Messiah, to be God come in the flesh, it's more than anyone could have hoped for. The wonder of our incarnate Lord is incredible. And look at the response of the angels to this news in verse 13. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to the God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. There is reason to glorify God. He has not abandoned his people. He is the promise-keeping God. And in that, the heavens rejoice. At Christmas, we rejoice with them. We remember that God took on flesh, that he is the Saviour, the Messiah, the Lord. And we can take comfort that for those who are his people, there is peace. But let us not be too familiar in a way that takes the story for granted. Let us marvel in the wonder of what is happening here and rejoice by praising God. Let's look at the responses of the shepherds and Mary. Because the shepherds, hearing this, are excited. Their response is, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They rush to tell others what they've seen. So they, they've seen the angel's appearance. They've heard from them. And now they go and they testify. Because they hurry off to find Mary and Joseph and the baby in verse 16, but then they go on to spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. They are caught up in the wonder of what is happening and they want to tell others. But what's interesting is there's a bit of a difference in how Mary responds and how others seem to respond. Because in verse 17, the shepherds tell people the news that they've heard. 
And the response of people seems understandable. They're amazed by what the shepherds tell them. And amazement is a right response, but I wonder if amazement is actually a response that lasts ongoing. Because we can be amazed and then the amazement passes. And Luke seems to contrast that slightly with what Mary does. Because in verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Perhaps she adds them onto the angelic visitation that she had in chapter 1. She takes the things she's heard and she reflects on them. She treats the news as precious and she ponders on it and contemplates it. And Luke's focus is not necessarily that what she comes to understand or a flash of insight that she's received. No, the focus is on seeming to be that she wants to know more of what God is doing. So what is our response to Christmas and the incredible story of the incarnation that lies at its heart? Do we have an amazement that fades? Has the story become commonplace to us? Or do we treasure the news? Do we ponder it in our heart? Are we like the shepherds? We want to testify to it. And then also in verse 20, to glorify and praise God for it. Because yes, we should be amazed at the incredible nature of the incarnation. But we should also treasure it to ponder the wonder and glory of it. To glorify and praise God for all that he's done. Because you see, it's interesting. As I said back at the start, when I read the story the hundredth time to my kids, I'm not as excited by it. But do you know who is? They are. That's why they pick the story. Even though they know what's going to happen on the next page, even though in many cases they know the words off by heart, they are always excited to read it. That's why they pick it and bring it to me to read it. They actually love the words. They treasure the story. They don't let it become familiar in a way that it becomes commonplace. For them it's familiar in a way that is exciting. So let's make sure that at Christmas time we are struck anew by the wonder of the incarnation, by God taking on flesh. Let's give thanks for his glory, his majesty and his mercy. Let us give thanks and praise to him. Please join me in prayer. Our Lord and God, we give you thanks and praise that you are faithful to your promises that you do not forget your people. We give you thanks that you came into the world. May we be struck by the wonder of the incarnation and not take for granted the incredible nature of what you have done. We thank and praise you for your incredible love and for the coming of your Son, Jesus, who is Saviour, Messiah and Lord. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.